0: And all of a sudden, it was like somebody blacked out the sun. He's standing in the doorway, and this big, booming voice says, I want to know who brought this big avocado in here. Well, his staff doesn't know what's going on. They think somebody tried to play a practical joke, and they're all in trouble, and they're all standing stiff at attention. Buckle up. You're listening to Terminal Exchange.
1: I'm Philip Adams, and this is episode 43 of Terminal Exchange, the official podcast show of Nussbaum Transportation. Are you still deciding what you want to be when you grow up? Well, that's the question that today's feature exchange poses with retired Army Colonel and now Nussbaum driver, Jay Clayson. As you'll hear in this exchange, Jay has a myriad of job experiences in addition to his storied military career. And even at 67 years of age and talking retirement, I don't think driving a truck will be the period on Jay's resume. But he's happy to be here now, and we're happy to have him in the Newsbomb family as well. Here's one for Newsbomb employees for extra credit. If you email TerminalExchange at newsbomb.com with the answer to the following question, we'll enter your name into a drawing for a $50 Visa gift card. Now, this contest is limited to Newsbomb employees only, both drivers and non-drivers, but feel free to submit the answer either way. Again, email terminal exchange at newsbomb.com with your answer. Here's the question Who gave Jay Clayson the nickname Avocado Man? You'll have to listen through this episode to find out that answer. So here is Avocado Man, Colonel Jay Clayson. Jay thanks for mu- so much for uh, stopping in this afternoon and uh, sitting down with me to chat. I'm excited to get some stories out of you here from your experience uh, in a variety of, of fields. And uh, I think our listeners are in for
0: a treat here. Well, thank you, Phil. It's great to be here and I'm excited to be a part of uh, NewsBomb.
1: So Jay, I want to, um, well, you kind of indicated the idea that you've, had a lot of jobs. You've held a lot of different positions, little different things over the years. In fact, even uh, getting flack from people about uh, not being able to hold a job. But then you gave me a little quip uh, to that. <laughs>
0: you're, you're <on laughs> well, when they would say, wow, you've had a lot of jobs or something in effect, like maybe you can't keep a job. My answer was, well, I need to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And I think I have. It's called retired. <laughs>
1: When's the last time you had to tell somebody uh, that you still were figuring out uh, what you wanted to be when
0: you grew up? Oh, probably six months ago, maybe less. <laughs> uh, and, and you're how old now? I'm sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. I'm, still I'm figuring out what you want to be when you grow going up. Going to be the company's <laughs> oldest truck driver soon. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> uh, but uh, and you've been here with the company for about a about year, three months. Three months. Yeah, okay, I started the first of July. Okay, so uh, and I've gotten to talk to you a couple of different times, and it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. A great, you know, great personality that you've got, and uh, uh, it's just fun to talk to you.
0: Just a lot of war stories. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so speaking of war stories, I mean, you literally have war stories. I mean, that you could share. I'm sure you wouldn't share all of them here, uh, but you have 37 years of Actual serv- military service experience, yes, correct, under your correct. belt, and that was with the army, correct? That was with the army. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, that's that's a career, um, well, I, and, and just uh, getting into that.
0: <laughs> I um, started as a private. Uh, I was drafted out of college. I stayed. I changed my major and actually lost my student deferment uh, right at the end of the Vietnam War. So I spent three and a half years on active duty. Uh, short. Uh, tour in Vietnam, about two and a half months, and then back to Okinawa, Japan. I was a personnel clerk. And um, after uh, my time overseas, I came back to Fort Riley, Kansas. Wonderful place. A bird asked, to, you know, a woodpecker asked to pack his lunch to fly across the state. <laughs> <laughs> Flat open wa- yeah, Ferrari. Uh, but I got out and uh, went to college in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Tennessee Temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was married. I had two children by that time. And um, I really needed money. So I, there were some young guys recruiting for the Tennessee National Guard on campus and uh, talked me into coming and visiting. And I actually joined on a try one-year program, knowing that I didn't have to stay beyond nine months because I was going to be over my total initial six-year obligation. Um, got in and didn't realize at the time how much I missed it. I loved the camaraderie and I loved to travel. And I was serving with former Vietnam vets that were there Mm -hmm. volunteering like I was. And um, I finally made Staff Sergeant. And uh, right after my promotion, this major took me aside and he said, Sergeant Clayson, he said, "You're you're a good NCO, but we need officers. And I want you to go to Officer Candidate School, OCS. I kind of looked around behind him like, who in the world are you talking to? <laughs> but looking back, the lesson I learned is you never know what people see in you that you don't recognize hmm. in yourself. And he understood that I had the potential of becoming an officer. And I kind of took it as a challenge. And uh Yeah, becoming an officer though, that's that's the easy part, right? I mean Well, they don't give away a commission. That's <laughs> what I was about to say. <laughs> you earn it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went through uh, the academy, uh, Fort McClellan, Alabama, Smyrna, Tennessee. It was a 15-month-long program um, done on weekends and two weeks uh, during the summer. A lot of hazing, but very challenging academics and great (laughs) training in leadership. The military starts training leaders at a very, very early time in their career, starting at boot camp, basic training. Mm. And they're always looking to develop leadership.
1: What, what do they do? So I, I, I do not have that military background. So uh, how, does, how do they start building that leadership? What, what are some of the ways that they, they go about instilling that in you? Yeah?
0: Well, the, the real um, sum of what Officer Candidate School is about is they literally put you under uh, pressure um, with more tasks than are humanly possible. Mm. They know that you can't do everything. The lesson is to learning how to prioritize, manage your time. And until you put yourself in that situation, you don't really realize what you're able to achieve. Hmm. And that was the value I found from going through that school. All of a sudden, I realized I was capable of a lot more than I thought I was. And many times we sometimes listen to uh, family or friends or bosses who want to say, wow, you can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. It's like you never know until you try. And the real lesson I think I learned overall from my entire military career is you don't fail until you give up. There were many times where courses were very challenging. Sometimes I didn't pass. I had to go back and repeat, but I stuck at it. And I'll give you a quick example. One of my courses was uh, taught by one of my friends. He was senior to me. He was a major. He happened to have a Ph.D. in economics. He was the head of uh, the economics department at Western Michigan University, passed over for promotion twice and retired as a major. Now I was a captain at that time, and I thought, "Holy cow! If you cannot get promoted in the army with a doctor's degree, I don't stand a chance." The difference was time, circumstances, and and what you do. In this case, he was during a time that we were downsizing in the military, mm-hmm. and so he got caught in a reduction in which normally they would have promoted several thousand majors to lieutenant colonel, and his particular year they only promoted 600. Mm. And so he wasn't selected. Um, At the same time, you need to seek those challenging positions to develop your skills and your abilities that will hone you to be capable for the next level, the next opportunity. At one of my promotions, I remember the commander said something to the effect that the, the Army has determined that I have the potential of performing duty in the next higher rank. In other words, I hadn't earned it. I just showed the potential right. of doing that duty. And so uh, I learned a lot, a lot of valuable lessons from the military, um, a lot of people skills, uh, which are very, very critical. Uh, and I saw it in ministry. Uh, I've taught college. And um, one of the uh, goals that I have is to develop a program of leadership for ministers. A lot of young ministers go to seminary. What do you take in seminary? I did my master's in theology online from Liberty University. It was all theology. Right. The issues our pastors face really don't deal so much with theology as much as leadership issues leadership, administration, budgets, dealing with people. Yes, the physical aspect Mm -hmm. and such. And we don't have any of those types of programs for our seminaries. So that, again, comes from my background in the military combined with education.
1: You had stated to me before we started recording that you had a goal of making captain. Yes. And you you mentioned just now that you, you were captain at a point in time here, so you, so you made yes. that.
0: Well, at the time I got commissioned because I had to kind of set a goal and say, <clears throat> well, why am I going through all of this? And in the middle of OCS, I began to realize this is a big challenge and a big commitment. And no longer can I say, well, I'll just stay for a couple of years. I need to make this a career. And I thought about what would be my potential. And at that time, I had uh, been in several different companies and observed several captains as company commanders because that's what that rank is designed for. And I said, you know, that'd be cool. I'd like to be a company commander, command a, a company of soldiers. And uh, I figured about the time that I would make captain and do that, I would complete 20 years, be eligible for retirement. So that was my goal. Things changed drastically between second lieutenant being commissioned and the time I made captain. We were actually short officers, so I had an opportunity to command my first company while I was still a first lieutenant, Uh, completed that assignment, transferred to another unit because I changed civilian jobs. And uh, immediately was selected to be a company commander of another unit, uh, again, while I was still a first lieutenant. So I was already on staff by the time I made captain. Um, Kept thinking, I'm going to have to retire anytime soon. Never expected to spend 37 years. Um, Decided, I need to kind of figure out where I'm headed and what what are my goals by staying in the reserves. And I began to realize I love to travel and I love the camaraderie. Military people are special. They're special in my heart. I love them. I love working with them. And in my civilian job, I was principal of a Christian school working with military families. And they were awesome. I loved it. Hmm. And so uh, I decided I'm going to stay as long as I like it. And when I I don't enjoy it anymore, it's time to give it up. Came a couple times where there were some assignments that were challenging, were boring, wasn't what I, I was really enjoying. I'm thinking maybe it's time to retire. And that's when my friend said, no, no. You've put in all this work and all this effort. You can stay, stay as long as you can stay, continue to crib it because you've gone through the schooling and the courses and the experiences that you can now start mentoring others. And I'm a firm believer in mentorship. And so I, I decided I'll transfer units and a change of scenery made the difference. And I loved it. And I decided to stay. So the next thing, you know, I deploy, I spent a year in Hungary and I got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and, uh, then I came back, I had a battalion command. And then later after nine eleven, I was actually in Germany when nine eleven occurred. I had okay. done the tour in Hungary, had a little bit, I finished up in uh, uh, Heidelberg, Germany. I actually went to he- Germany 25 times. Wow. I've been to 34 different <laughs> countries thanks to the military. <laughs> and so I, um, I came back, was home 32 days and, uh, One of the things I had decided to do was I was tired of losing my job, my civilian job, because I was in reserves. And there were a lot of companies just somehow just did not like the fact that I had something going on on the side. And uh, I tried to convince one company, look at the advantage you have of all the training the military has given me, and they, they couldn't see it. And so when I came back from Bosnia, I said, you know, I think it's time for me to do it myself. I watched a war-torn country, and I was in humanitarian operations. And those people, we forgot in this country what communism is. And they had gone from communism to a free market, and they went to town. And, I mean, there was no electricity, no running water, no gasoline. Cars burned out. They're riding sick horses. Yet, in the period of four years, they went from that to where I went back in 2000 and could not find major intersections of roads I traveled every day because of the modern BP gas station, uh, the Volkswagen dealership on the corner. I mean, they became, because they found out, you know, I don't have to pay some government official under the table half my profits to be in business. And they went to town. And they said, if they can do it, I can do it. So I started my own business. I started a home-based travel agency. We didn't get rich. We had it for 20 years, but we've been on a lot of cruises and a lot of tours and vacations, and we had a lot of fun booking people's travel. Yeah. And so, uh, of course, 9 11 destroyed my travel business for four long, hard years. And I actually drove truck at night for a company uh, leased to the post office. Okay. And they hold bulk mail. So I drove truck at night and worked my travel business during the day. And, um, I had really got it up and running. I hired my oldest daughter to come to work for me. And uh, um, 9-11 occurred. I came home. I'm trying to resurrect this business. And I get a phone call. Colonel Clayson, you're going to come to Norfolk and do great things for your country. To which I'm thinking, uh-uh, no, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a Marine Corps colonel that had called me. Great guy. And uh, he convinced me that it was probably the best thing to do. And so I volunteered. And uh, my one-year call-up lasted seven years. Mm. And at the end of my, uh, my last two years, I was selected to be a subject matter expert for humanitarian operations, disaster relief. This time, domestically, everything we had done in that arena throughout my whole career, I spent 21 years in civil affairs. It had always been focused on the host nation population. No taking care of them, whether it was combat, natural disaster, or man-made disaster. We never really thought about using our reserve civil affairs folks for domestic operations, but we were very key to doing those sorts of things. And so I got called to active duty. I worked for a major general by the name of Russell Honore, nicknamed the Raging Cajun. He was from Louisiana. (laughs) And uh, I was his disaster planning section chief. So I would give him almost weekly briefings on the status of fighting forest fires or hurricanes. Okay. And uh, had to learn the national response plan. I wrote the DOD portion of the national response plan in 2002 and um, was, got very much involved in that to such a degree that after I retired, FEMA actually offered me a job as the Southeast USA disaster planner. Um, I've lived in big cities all over the world. But I'm a country kid from the Upper Peninsula, Michigan. I do not want to live in Washington, D.C. No. And uh, my youngest daughter, one of six, was a senior in high school. And I had already missed my oldest son's senior year of high school when I was deployed Mm -hmm. to Bosnia. And I said, you know, I just don't need the money that bad. I don't want to, (laughs) to do it. So I retired. immediately became a defense contractor. Um, The commander was in Joint Forces Command in Norfolk at that time was commanded by General Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis, great guy. He would come, and we would make our presentations, and each each subject matter expert would make his presentation that we gave to the other four-star commands as we trained around the world. And then he would critique and give us feedback. And because he traveled internationally and built relationships with heads of state of all these different countries— he would bring us real-world stories and situations that related to the material that we were presenting mm. to these commands. Mm-hmm. So it was great work. Very, very smart guy. Very brilliant guy. Uh, still a hardcore Marine, <laughs> but but really a super great guy. I enjoyed working for him. And I retired and uh, basically started doing the same job as a civilian defense contractor in Miami at U.S. Southern Command. And while I was there, uh, General John Kelly became our commander from chief of staff. Mm -hmm. And I would give the same kinds of briefings to general Kelly. Uh, Great guy. Got a wonderful sense of humor. Really a funny guy. Uh, Really cares about his people, cares about doing a, a good job and really very knowledgeable about Latin America and the Caribbean. So when I retired from the military, my daughter hosted a retirement ceremony for me. Nice. My son said I had to keep the speech short. So I did. Uh, and I said, I can't really tell you all the things I've done in 37 years in the military, but I've slept on top of tanks, in the back of trucks, and Humvees, in the sand, in the snow. Uh, But I've also slept on the floor of the House of Representatives. We did a terrorist training exercise to defend Congress uh, for the State of the Union address in 2002. Hmm. I helped plan security for the Super Bowl in New Orleans in 2002. And um, uh, met a lot of great people, and I've even stood on the corner in Winslow, Arizona.
1: <laughs> uh, nice, nice. <clears throat> that is quite a resume. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are working at NewsBomb now. Yes, Yeah. Before we get to that, though, I, I want to kind of go back to some. Just pull some things out, maybe here. Um, so you you worked on uh, the DoD piece of the disaster response right? Uh, you said response. back in uh, 2002. 2002. So would that, uh, what you worked on there, would that have been uh, in place then when say like Katrina came in and, yes. and things like that? Yes. Right. What, what now, are, since
0: then there's been numerous revisions. Sure. I know, would like, assume so. Yeah.
1: Um, but what, what, what does that part, I mean, what's that even look like for you to put into uh, a response plan? What kind of things are you take into account? What are you looking at?
0: Well, actually what we had to do prior to 9-11, um, our government was what we call in the military stovepiped, you know, within the Department of Justice, they talked to each other up and down, but there wasn't a lot of cross talk with other government agencies. And that goes all the way down to the local level. i give you a quick example. We were quite shocked to discover when I worked for General Honore that law enforcement agencies didn't talk to each other. The FBI did not share information with the sheriff's department, and the local police don't talk to the sheriff. One of the things General Honoré did that I was uh, very impressed with is we sent some of our staff officers to various conferences planning because we're all trying to figure out how do we spell Homeland Security, and that was the word of the day after 9-11. Sure. Homeland Security. We we thought we were safe until the 9-11 occurred. Right. And so- We would have uh, uh, military people that would show up like at law enforcement agencies, and they would give presentations on some of the things they did. I remember one Air Force lieutenant colonel we had was there. FBI agent made some presentation, and she raised her hand and said, okay, now, whom did you share this with? And he looked at her in shock and thought for a minute and finally said, wait a minute, you don't understand. We don't operate like Department of Defense does. So we don't share with anybody she said, well, why not? There's other people that information would be critical to. And he said, that's because DOD views the world differently. Said, you're all about deterrence, which is true. We're trying to keep the enemy and the bad guys away from the shore or away from the host nation, partner mm-hmm. nation, whatever mm-hmm. operation we're involved in. Law enforcement is about apprehension. Now, I don't know how much has changed in this arena, but one big reason was funding was tied to apprehension. The higher your apprehension rates, your conviction rates, the more funding you got. So why would the sheriff share with the local police that he's on to some criminal when he thinks he might be able to capture him? So they were very concerned that by working with DOD and with the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, they were being forced into working interagency, as we called it, that we were going to blow their cover, so to speak, on some of these situations. Hmm. So what General Honoré came up with is said, within the military, we have different levels of classified information and procedures on who can know that and when that information can be released. And so he said, what we're going to do is build another level of classification called law enforcement sensitive. For us in DOD, it doesn't really mean anything in that it's not secret, it's not classified, it's not top secret, it's not special compartmentalized information, but we will treat it as if it was. Hmm. Safeguard that information if you share it with us. And before we share it with someone else, we will check with you and say, can we share that? That helped unify the law enforcement and disaster agencies within our government to a great degree. And um, then we started really training uh, one of the interesting things I observed under President Bush was we would do uh, an exercise. I helped stand up U.S. Northern Command, Homeland Security, Homeland Defense, and they would do an exercise called top-off, top, uh, top officials. Okay. And it was the top officials of all these different government agencies. The four-star general would participate in the exercise, but things like the head of FEMA and uh, other government agencies – they don't have the training funds. They don't have the people and their directors are involved very heavily in day-to-day operations. So they'd send a a substitute, some lower individual. When we would start doing this exercise, it would come to the point where that person would say, well, I can't give you an answer. That's only our director makes that decision. Hmm. So president Bush finally said, because DOD, we actually said, you know what? We feel this is so important. We will give them some of our training funds to get them to come and participate with these uh, exercises that we're doing. And there were all sorts of disasters. I mean, every kind of imaginable disaster that you can think, all rolled in one. The world's worst scenario of tragedies taking place and directing every entity into their expertise to take care of that situation and take care of our people. And as a result, um, President Bush said the directors of all these government agencies will participate. Mm-hmm. If my DOD 4STAR can participate, you can participate. They were short. They were very short because they don't have a lot of time to dig into sure. this. For the military, we actually only know two, two worlds. We live in the world of operations. We go to war, or it might be a humanitarian operation, but it's a real-world operation that we're sure. doing. Or we're training. We're okay. training to do that. That's the only two worlds that we know. So consequently, for me— particularly in my civilian world, I'm very much on train. Train your people to do what it is that you expect them to do. And so many civilian companies have equated uh, experience. Must have somebody with experience, to which I say, yeah, you're being cheap. That tells me you're too cheap to train the person to do it because each company has their own way of how they do businesses you know, and a lot of them think they're in competition with each other. And many times, Hey, you serve that customer and we serve this customer. We're not competing against each other. We could share information, but they can't, they can't see that. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of valuable lessons learned in, in that kind of uh, experience.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned working with uh, John Kelly. Yes. And him having a good sense of humor and everything. I, I, I feel like there's. you might be able to give
0: us a story. Is there something that you're able to share? <laughs> Actually, there? There, there is. Um, I don't know. I was sharing it with somebody last night. Uh, when I worked down there, I lived about half a mile from the headquarters in a little gated community. Well, I'm a country kid, and uh, I like space, and I had a little patio. That was my yard. You know, I could have cut my grass with a pair of scissors. <laughs> So we loved to camp, and our goal was to become full-time RVers, which we did for eight years. But we decided to check out a local campground, we ended up getting a motorhome, and we lived in an RV while I worked. I just drove back and forth. Well, Homestead is a wonderful, beautiful area, and I had a walking path around a park, and it had avocados, just fell out of the trees, mangoes and avocados, big ones. So I would pick them up, and I would bring them into work. And, of course, I had a lot of Latinos that I worked with, and they would just grab those up. They Uh love them. I do too. And so I met a gentleman rather unique, and and it's really neat. Uh, I equate truck driving in the military very much the same. You never know who you're going to meet in uniform, Hmm. and you never know who you're going to meet driving a truck. They're the most interesting people if you take the time to get to know them. In this case, I met a Navy commander by the name of Eric St. Peter, who was a Mustang like me. He came in as an as a E-1 in the Navy, and they trained him as a cook. Now, I'm thinking he must be a pretty good cook, because he told me he ended up, when he was an E-4, cooking in the White House for George Bush Sr. and President Clinton's first term. Smart guy. He got his degree while he's doing that, and he becomes an officer. And uh, he uh, came down, and General Kelly picked him as his personal aide. And so... He knew that I would bring these avocados in. He came to me one day and said, would you get me a really nice big one? I found out the general's wife loves avocados. Hmm. And so I said, sure. So I found a really nice one. I brought a bunch of them in, and I brought it into the command suite where General Kelly's office is and all his staff is. And I saw uh, Eric, and I said, here, this one's for the general. He said, wait here. And he goes into the general's office, and I'm chit-chatting with an army sergeant when he comes out. And he winks at me and goes and sit down. And General Kelly's a pretty big guy. And all of a sudden, it was like somebody blacked out the sun. He's standing in the doorway, and this big, booming voice says, I want to know who brought this big avocado in here. Well, his staff doesn't know what's going on. They think somebody tried to play a practical joke, and they're all in trouble. And they're all standing stiff at attention. And... Uh, I'm retired. I stand at attention out of respect for sure. this rank, you know. But I looked around. And I'm kind of laughing because they're all rolling their eyes at each other like, who did that? We're in trouble. And finally, I said, sir, that'd be me. And he was about 20 feet away and in about two steps, he bounded over, grabbed my hand and said, thank you very much, sir. I'll take all those you can get. The little woman just loves them. <laughs> so... About a week or so later, general officers don't go anywhere without a whole entourage of people with them, you know. And so I'm walking up the hallway, and uh, you might recall in the news some time back, I believe it was General Kelly was on his way, like, to the Capitol and um, got snarled up in traffic. And he jumped out of the limo and just took off down the street. And the the Secret Service are scurrying to catch up with him. I bet. He moves with a purpose. And, uh, he was coming down the hallway and here's this all entourage behind him. And I saw a two star and a couple one stars and the command sergeant major, you know, well, I meet him in a hallway, he's way ahead of him. And he just kind of makes a little pistol with his finger and thumb and, uh, winks at me and says, avocado man. (laughs) (laughs) And so he walked on by, they're trying to catch up with him. And this one star general heard that. And, uh. He didn't understand what that was all about. He reached out and grabbed me by the coat and wheeled me around and said, I want to know what the general meant, avocado man. (laughs) And uh, I thought about it, and I said, boy, if this this general knew that I was just a retired colonel, he'd have me up against the wall, you know, probably having me doing push-ups or something. So I thought, I'm just going to play it smart. So I just looked him in the eye, real casual, and I said, well, John and I are friends. And I walked off and he ran to catch up with the general. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nice.
1: So you've got all of these, this different experience. You've done a lot of service. You, you even spit out some different things as you were talking there, uh, being a principal at a school and all these, uh, without even getting into all that, you still somehow, you ended up into, into trucking. You're here at Newsbaum now. How does all of this, this come, all come, come together?
0: To well, when I retired down there at uh, Southern Command, working for General Kelly, actually what had happened, it was kind of two things. One, I was planning on retirement, and I had actually taken the training from the military on writing strategic plans, and I developed a plan to take myself into being retired and traveling in an RV. And uh, here I had worked using my post-9-11 GI Bill. I did this Master's of Theology online. It was a uh, three-year degree. I did it in eighteen months, so I could graduate with my youngest daughter and her husband, who were on campus. uh, That—that I want to stop you there. So you—you walked with them too. They walked with me at the, my seminary they, they graduation. They walked with you. And they got their bachelor's degrees at my seminary graduation. That's fantastic. Liberty makes a big deal about families, yeah. That's so great cool. great about that. That's cool. Yes. I don't think they appreciate it as much as I realize how much work it was. <laughs> right. But I'm looking at retiring, I said, you know, I just finished this degree, and uh, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not just going to sit around. And I started thinking, what kind of ministries are there related to Camp Roads? And again, began to realize, again, so many experiences come back years later to be beneficial. When I was a teenager in my little hometown up in Paradise, my pastor would come and get me on Sunday morning, and we would go out to the state park, which was a campground, and we held services. There are people who go camping that will come to a short chapel service in a campground that never go to church in their hometown. And so I started looking, and I found an organization called Christian Resort Ministries. And uh, they specialize in putting chaplains in campgrounds. So I contacted them. It took a little while, a couple of years before I actually retired and did that. But I ended up being a chaplain in a campground in Brownsville, Texas, in the wintertime, winter Texans. And I actually started a church and uh, was there for three years. The owners owned three parks. And, of course, they found out about my military career. So they recruited my wife and I to, to manage a distressed park. And uh, it was a lot of work, but we enjoyed it. Great people. We loved helping them. And uh, we were able to take that park from 62% occupancy to 95% and fix a lot of things. Yeah, it was a a great experience. But I finally realized that um, I needed to establish a home base. We had sold our house. I have six acres where I grew up in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan. Beautiful in the summertime, but I hate winters, and I hate shoveling snow. (laughs) And I said, I don't want to end up having to retire and make that my, my year round home. And I lived half my life in the South. So we settled in Cookville, Tennessee. We literally bought the farm, we bought a little three acre fruit farm, awesome. eight miles out of town. And um, I have six kids, 12 grandkids, batch of them uh, in high school, about to go to college. I have one grandson in particular I'm very proud of. Uh, he got a football scholarship when he graduated, 22,000. Doesn't even cover half. Wow. And so my wife and I got talking over and said, you know, what if we got part-time jobs and just helped out the grandkids? We could pay off our cars early, you know, and just uh, help, help out the kids. So I said, you know, that's a good idea. Well, she got out and was able to get a part-time job fairly quickly. I interviewed and interviewed. And every time I finished an interview, it was the same response. Oh, sir, you're overqualified. <laughs> I hate that response. Yeah. Yes. So I kept thinking back of all the things I've done in my life. And I said, you know, I really did enjoy driving truck. And I did it back when I was raising my, my kids. I didn't like being gone from the family. But with the CDL in my pocket, I always knew I had a job. I didn't need someone standing over my shoulder watching me work. And I loved to travel. And I said, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to driving and my wife said, "Well, you know, you made the backup plan. See, the military always teaches you to make a backup plan. Uh, that if we were RVing and you need to make money, you take the truck and make it like a hot shot and deliver freight." Mm-hmm. She said, well, "Why don't you see about delivering RVs?" So I did. I uh, we lived in a forty-four foot fifth wheel, three axle fifth wheel with a twelve foot garage on the back. I have a motorcycle. <laughs> I haven't grown up yet. <laughs> And, don't ever, uh, don't ever. <laughs> and so I took my Ford f one uh, four fifty and um, leased it to a company out of uh, Goshen, Indiana. And I started in January or February delivering RVs from the manufacturer to dealers all over the nation. Uh, unfortunately, Ford doesn't have a good history of the engine in that truck. I had put the second engine in it, $18,000, mm. and Mississippi blew the engine. And uh, so I finally... Uh, I, it took forever to get that truck back, <clears throat> but thinking it over, I told my wife, I said, you know what? I'm tired of sleeping uh, in the back seat of my truck. I had tried driving the motor coaches in Class Cs, and then I ended up driving school buses. I said, I'm tired of sleeping on the floor of the bench, and semis have a bunk in them. I'm going to go back to driving. <laughs> they semis. actually have a bed. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, of course, because I'd been off the road for a long time. You know, most companies wanted to treat me as a rookie, And you got to go back to truck driving school or you got to go out on the road five or six weeks. You know, you got to take our training program, you know. And I told Margaret, I said, you know, I just got a gut feeling there's a company out there that says, here's a guy with some education and he's been a dispatcher and a traffic planner and a truck driver. We might be a little rusty, but we might be able to use a guy like that. Well, Nussbaum was the company that did. I actually was researching companies while I was delivering the RVs, saw several of the trailers with our family and faith and family logo. And I said, that's the kind of company I want to work for. Uh, And so I actually called like in March and you didn't have any openings because I live in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the end of June that you called and said, Hey, you live in Tennessee. We have an opening. And I'm like, when do you want me there? <laughs> and I was very excited to come to work for the company, and it's been a great experience. I'm having fun. Good, I'm having fun. Yeah. Good. And it's uh, again, it's to help out the grandkids, you know. And uh, I, I'm very thankful for the opportunity.
1: So you told me uh, you know, you've done 34 countries, 49, 49 states. 49 states. Never made it to Hawaii yet.
0: Never made it. Or could not get the Army to send me away. but it's on the bucket
1: list. Well, uh, okay, so everybody <laughs> listening, we'll start a GoFundMe for Jay here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there we don't. <go. laughs>
0: I, I threatened that I was going to go. I just couldn't figure out how to get my fifth wheel there. <laughs> yeah, it gets expensive. <laughs>
1: yeah, really. But do, does your family share the same sort of adventure, sense of adventure to get out and, and go? Did, did, did they get that from you as well? or?
0: Uh, a lot of them did, yes. My oldest son, uh, somewhat like myself, um, he he graduated from uh, Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids. Five-time college, All-American, cross-country and track runner. Cool. Yes. Set the 400-meter record in high school. Awesome. Uh, stood for 10 years. And um, he was the registrar of the seminary while he was still a student, student. And once he got his Master of Divinity, they paid for him to go get his Ph.D., He now works for the provost marshal for Michigan State University and does a number of things as well as a university professor. He teaches at the master's level. I teach at the bachelor's bachelor's level. Um, But he set out at one point, the seminary was going to have him be the director of their Asian seminary. They have a seminary in China. Mm -hmm. I really like the concept. The idea is to train Chinese ministers in theology in the context of their culture. Hmm. We like to put the American concept of church when we go overseas, and many times we fail to take in consideration how different the culture is. Sure. Um, and so he's been to China, I don't know exactly how many times, five, six times or more. Wow, wow. One time he went in, and they went in, he took a group, and they went so far inland, they had not had Westerners that far inland, it was Mongolia, in China, since the Communists took over in the 1920s, the head of the Communist Party came out and held a, a party in their honor. No kidding. Because they had never had Westerners that far since then. Wow. Yes. Well, that's kind of a— uh, So he's he stood do do? on, the, on the, uh, the Great Wall. <laughs> cool. Uh, he's also done a missions trip to Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, real quickly, he uh, was a runner, of course, and uh, he was at a little sem- uh, Bible seminary way inland. And uh, he told me, he said, Dad, I have figured out how the Kenyans are so fast. <laughs> he said, they fed us. I went out. It was hot. I laid in the shade underneath the tree. He said, the young man came up and stood over and said, did you eat lunch? And he said, yeah, they fed us. He said, uh, me too. He said, I didn't see you. He said, oh, I went home said, you went home? There's no houses within miles of here. He said, uh, how did you go home? I ran. He said, well, how far is it? Oh, 10, 12 miles. He ran home for lunch and ran back.
1: <laughs> I, I don't even like driving that far <laughs> over lunch. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, I have um, the youngest two daughters have been on several uh, missions trips, short-term missions yeah. trips. We, we used to go to Romania. And we booked those with our travel agency. Um, I have a daughter that went with word of life to Brazil, um, and I have a few that haven't traveled much of even the United States. So no. not all of them, but it's not all of them, but not some not them of them definitely got right. right. That's cool. It's,
1: that's that's neat. Uh, you know, I've I've done a few countries, but in a handful of states, nowhere close to that. Right. <laughs> but I I, th- I think that's neat. I'd I'd love to. Well, have I highly more recommend that opportunity. everybody
0: but. try and and uh, travel. Uh, because it really changes you. And when you come back and you see particularly how other countries uh, live and do things, I would always tell my soldiers when we went to a different country, understand this, the way they do things doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong because it's not the way us Americans do it. And if you take the time and look, you probably find there's a very good reason why they do what they do the way they do, Mm -hmm. you know, and... um, it comes back, and you have a heightened sense of appreciation for this country, not only for what the military has done, but what our population, our people have done to make this country what it is.
1: I couldn't ask you to end on a better note. So <laughs> I want to say thank you, Jay, for your service, uh, one, to this country and protecting our freedoms and doing all the work that you did, put, putting a career into that. Uh, thank you for your short service so far to the company. Uh, appreciate having you here. And uh, it's been fun talking to you, getting to know okay. you a little bit more. I know there's so much more we could dig into, but uh, I think that's a good stopping point for now. Maybe all we'll right. get you in another time and right. and uh, and talk some more stuff. But
0: sure. uh, i got a lot of lot of war stories, and they're not all about me. Yeah, I, I've, I saw soldiers, and you never know what they'll do, and it's just nothing short of ingenious of some of the things that our our people can come up with and do.
1: Okay, so sneak. I, I, I'm going to extend this just a little bit. I want to sneak peek, so that we'll, we'll bring you back in another time here. So give me, I, 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 give me a, put us out on a cliffhanger here.
0: <laughs> well, um, well, I'm thinking of, of two situations, but one in particular, I was in Germany, and we were doing some training, and I was an observer trainer. And I had a partner, and we're kind of doing what we call an after-action review, going over step-by-step step of everything that took place in that particular situation. And uh, the Germans had put a whole bunch of portageons up for the soldiers to use. And um, I watched this young fellow come out of an ammunition bunker where he'd spent the night, and he goes down, he opens a bunch of doors, and he finally goes in the end one, and after a couple of minutes, all of a sudden, that thing starts shaking violently. And the door flies open, and he comes out jumping around on one foot, and his boot's on fire. And you'll have to see me later to find <laughs> out why. Perfect.
1: Uh, Jay, thanks so much, and we will get you back again to finish that story. <laughs> okay. I can't wait and for I'll it. I'll have
0: to tell you about the elephant story.
1: The elephant. The of the course. Table. Why not? Yeah. You nice. <laughs>
0: truck was pulled by an elephant.
1: Oh, yes, yes. So, th- yes, I know this story. You did share that story with me. So we've got more stary- stories to share. We'll bring Jay back another time. So uh, this is just part one, I think, uh, with Jay Clayson. And, and uh, I can't wait to to talk more again. So, Jay, thanks so much
0: for stopping in. Thank you. It's great in. to be here. You've
1: been listening to Terminal Exchange, the official podcast show of Nussbaum Transportation. NewsBom is an industry leader in over-the-road freight transportation. For more information on Nussbaum's award-winning truckload services and top-paying driving careers, go to Nussbaum.com or NussbaumJobs.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Terminal Exchange. New episodes arrive every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts and share a little love by writing us a review. Then, go deeper into each exchange or listen to previous episodes at our podcast page, TerminalExchange.org.